We devote a lot of time and energy to the sermon as a church. I say that for myself specifically. There is no individual task that occupies more of my week than preparing to preach. It is the the meat and potatoes of pastoral ministry, the proclamation of God's word. As a church, we devote a lot of time to the sermon. More than half of our time together is sitting under the teaching uh, that comes from God's word. And it's interesting, as we think about the exposition of God's word, we see how counter that is to the world around us. We are trained more and more every single day to not appreciate lengthy exposition. We are trained to uh, love social media. Every single social media platform is turning to be snappier and snappier with these different reels and feeds that just give you a new uh, stimuli every 10 seconds. We love sound bites. Even maybe the most thoughtful and thought-provoking of the social media accounts or uh, uh, platforms would be Twitter, and you're limited to only a couple hundred words to express your thoughts. When we watch TV and movies, we expect now that there'll be a camera cut every five to ten seconds, and when you don't get that, you're uneasy. You're like waiting for something to happen. So we are trained to have these short attention spans, yet we gather every Lord's Day to listen to one person talk for more than 40 minutes, typically. Are we crazy? Or is that wise? You'll determine pretty quickly that I'm not going to only be up here for five or ten minutes, and so you obviously know what we conclude as a church that we believe there is something to the preaching of God's word. That it is, it is a very important part of what we do together as a church. But as we think this morning about the topic of preaching, about the topic of hearing God's word, I want you to think about questions that you probably have answers for, but maybe you haven't actually formulated those thoughts in your head. A question so simple as, what is a sermon? What is preaching? Maybe you could take that a little bit further and you could ask the question, what makes a good sermon good and what makes a bad sermon bad? Is it uh, thought-provoking questions? Is it uh, contemporary application? Is it the comfort of the chairs you sit in? Is it uh, the fact that it's short? What? How, are these things good things or are they bad things? How, what is preaching? The big idea from our sermon this morning is this. The preaching of God's word should be at the center of church life. The preaching of God's word should be at the center of church life. Now, I don't only want you to just take my word for it from that statement. What I want to do this morning is I want to make three observations from Scripture about what preaching is and what preaching does. And then my hope and prayer is that you conclude that that is true, that the preaching of God's word should be at the center of church life. And so those three observations that we'll work through this morning are this. Preaching is an explanation of God's word. 
Preaching is a proclamation of good news. And then finally, preaching builds the church. Preaching is an explanation of God's word. Preaching is a proclamation of good news. And preaching builds the church. Let's start with the first one. Preaching is an explanation of God's word. Now, we set the bar far too low if we think of preaching as simply an academic lecture. If that's all it is, I would say we we have just far too small of a view of what the act of preaching is. But just because I think that that's true, that it's more than an academic lecture, it's more than explanation, I don't want us to breeze past explanation. Explanation does matter. Preaching is an explanation of God's word. Because God's word matters. That's the premise of this thought and this point. That God's word matters very much. God has always been in the business of revelation. All through the Bible, as we read, not just the last book that's called Revelation. When I say revelation, I mean God revealing himself. He reveals himself in in, in who he is in his creative way as he creates the world. He literally speaks the world into existence. And then the crown jewel of creation is man and woman. God creates man and woman in, in his image to glorify him, to have dominion and rule over the earth. And so God speaks these things into existence. He gives instruction to the man and the woman, to Adam and Eve. He, he teaches them. He says, here's what you are to do. Here's what you are not to do. But then only a few chapters into the Bible do we see where there is a, a major problem. The major conflict uh, of the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 3, where God's word is questioned. Not only is God's word questioned, It is doubted. Not only is God's word doubted, it is disobeyed. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3 as the serpent tempts the woman. And what does he do? He makes her question God's word. He makes her, uh, he asks the question, did God really say? And I think you'll find as you think through your own life and you think through really every instance of sin, it comes down to a question, did God really say? Did God really say, I can't do this? Did God really say, I can't do that? Did God really say, I should do this? But we see that God is is in the business of revelation, but the consistent pattern that we see through Scripture is that humans disobey God's very words. God's authoritative word is questioned and disobeyed, yet this is not where the story ends, because God's word... God's word continues right there even in chapter 3 where God makes promises of hope. Promises that this sin and evil that entered the world through this rebellion would be taken care of in full. And then all throughout as we, we track this line throughout scripture we see that God continues to make big promises to continue to reveal himself and his character and his instruction to his people. And there is some obedience, certainly, but a lot more rejection of God's word. But we see that God's promises still hold true. And that very simple observation we can make as we read through, if you just took the Old Testament and kind of drew a thread through that, is that God's people are meant to hear and heed God's word. 
God's people are meant to hear and obey God. Because if we just hear and yet we don't understand and obey, are we really hearing? We can think of all sorts of times. Maybe when you were a child, your parent said, hey, clean your room. And then they say, did you hear me? And you can say, well, yeah, I heard you. But, but there's a lack of obedience. There's a, a disconnect between simply hearing and actually understanding and then obeying. This is why explanation matters, that we understand God's word. Because if we don't grow in our understanding, in our maturity, uh, we see many examples in case studies of people's lives where things go south quickly. But we see a good summary of what Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14. He says that we would grow into this mature manhood so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scheme. We see this too as we look at Psalm 1. We spent a time walking through Psalm 1 and we've constantly returned to Psalm 1, which tells, uh, it's this poem, it's this song that talks of the one who meditates on God's law, God's instruction day and night and how they will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Their roots will go deep and the roots hold that tree in place with an endless source of life-giving water. And the contrast to that of this person who meditates on God's word is like chaff, like the husks uh, that are blown away by even the slightest breeze. And so it matters very much that we understand God's word. We hear it, we need to understand it, and then we need to obey it. So explanation matters because God's word is a lamp in a dark room for us. It's water for parched lips. It's food for our soul. So we desperately need God's word. Would you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8? Nehemiah is uh, a book of the Bible, obviously. And if you find the book of Psalms, the biggest book in the Bible, and if you turn back a couple books, uh, you'll find Nehemiah. Nehemiah, there's a lot of context we could bring in here to talk about, but there's some really interesting observations we can make about how preaching is an explanation of God's word from Nehemiah chapter 8. But the, the general context here, God's people had been exiled because of their sin, but they've been allowed to return and rebuild. And so they've finished rebuilding the wall. Uh, they're sort of settling in. And then we see that uh, the scribe, Ezra, is to read the law. Uh, the word for law here is, is instruction. It's, it's God's instruction. It's the, what we would know as the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament or the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Ezra is going to read the law for the people of God. Now buckle up. There's a lot of names in this passage which I certainly will stumble over. So don't make your little pronunciation notes in the margin based on this reading. But Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, I want you to uh, make some observations in your mind as we think about the topic of preaching. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it 
facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. And in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseiah, on his right hand, and Padeah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Padiah, Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and uh, the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So we can make a number of helpful observations again, just from looking at this passage and thinking about what's going on here. Because it says some stuff about Ezra and his reading of the law, but it says just as much, if not more, about the people who are hearing God's word read and explained. And so what do we see here? We see that the people took initiative. They're the ones who invite Ezra to come and read the law. We see that the whole community gathers together. There's men, uh, women, and then when it talks about uh, those who could understand what they heard, well, who aren't men and women? Well, children. Those children who could understand what was being said and explained. We see that there's a platform that gets built for the purpose so that people can see and so that they can hear. We see that there's explicitly attentive listening and we see explicitly that there's lengthy exposition. They're, They're doing this for half a day. There's reverence. They stand. They raise their hands. They say amen. It's worshipful through and through. Ezra blesses the Lord. We see that the people respond in worship. And then Ezra reads from God's word. And and that is certainly the meat of what uh, the, the content is. But it also says that they explain God's word as the, so that the people could understand it. Verse 8 is a perfect summary. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, if we just took this passage and said we should rigidly apply it, and that tells us everything we need to know about preaching, we could run into problems. Because we could rigidly apply it and say, well, you know, faithful preaching only comes from the first five books of the Bible. Maybe that's a conclusion we come to. Or faithful preaching is only faithful if you're on a raised platform. So we're covered today. Uh, Maybe faithful preaching is only faithful when it takes half of a day. Well, you may think I preach a long time, but I don't preach from morning to midday. We could, we could look at all these different sections. We could say, maybe faithful preaching is only faithful when everybody responds by standing and by raising their hands and by saying, amen, amen, out loud. We Baptists would be doomed, right, if that was what determined faithful preaching. 
But there are a number of helpful applications that we can take from these principles as we think about our own uh, preaching in our churches and our own listening. You have an active role to play when you come to hear God's word explained. Because we look at the people as they came to God's word, and what were they? They were attentive, they were reverent, and they were worshipful. And so a question for you to ask yourself as you come here, uh, I thought about just starting out the sermon by saying, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You're all here. I'm glad you're here. I love looking at you. You're here, but what are you doing here? Are you coming here ready, attentive, eager to hear from God's word? That's what we do when we're gathering. And if this is true, that the Bible truly is God's word, how might that change the way you think about gathering to worship together? Because that's what, that's what they're, I think, exemplifying here in Nehemiah 8. They're attentive and they're reverent because they really believe that God speaks through his word. And it's, it's, it's purely worship. Do we fall into the trap of thinking that when the music stopped, the worship ended? Or when we sit to open up God's word, is that just as much worship for us? And so I want you just to think about these things. Four Ps that I think will help you uh, as we come together to listen to God's word. Four things. First, your posture. Now this could be literal posture. Uh, I mean just more your heart posture. Because as much as it would be affirming and wonderful for me to hear some amens and some hand raising and maybe even a head nod, I'd settle for that. Uh, That is not the standard for faithful listening. I hope, though, whether you say amen out loud or not, uh, that you are listening in such a way that you are doing that in your mind. That you can agree with the truths of God's word. That you can understand the feeling when you are convicted. And so ask yourself the question, what is my heart posture? On the worship side, that, that, that's this exact same as we think about sitting under God's word. Are you worshiping as you hear God's word explained? Because knowing God more will change us for the better. And so I hope that you come away with, you have this heart posture from our time together and you're not saying, what a service, or what a sermon. The aim of this heart posture is to come away saying, what a savior. That's how we come with the right heart posture. So posture first. Next one, prayer. Again, this is just a practical application here, not from Nehemiah 8. But consider prayer uh, as an instrumental role of what you bring every time you come to our gathered worship. Pray for yourself. Pray that the Lord would speak through his word. I love that song that we sang. For we are, it, it is really just a prayer. We're saying, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food from your holy word. So pray for yourself. Pray for others. Pray for visitors. Pray for fellow members. Pray for me, please. Uh, pray for whoever is preaching. Pray that the Lord would use whoever stands behind this pulpit to proclaim God's word week in and week out. Pray that God would speak. Prioritize. That's our third P. Prioritize 
sitting under God's word in your life. Consider what that means. Uh, that, that means coming, right? We need to prioritize gathering together to hear faithful preaching. We need to prioritize it as something that is not only just a thing we need to tick the box, but maybe come a few minutes earlier. Maybe come and sit down for just a few minutes and pray, slow yourself down. We need to prioritize these things because in life, we think and we speak highly of the things that are a high priority to us. And so as much as it's a personal discipline that we can work on, let's think and speak highly of the privilege that we have to gather together to sit under God's word and to hear from God through his word. And then the fourth P, closely related, is preparation. Prepare to hear preaching. And so you can ask yourself the question, how could I best prepare to come and hear God's word preached? This is going to sound silly. This is not rigid application. Uh, you have autonomy to decide what time you go to bed. But maybe it's something as simple as going to bed early on a Saturday night. We go to bed early if we have a job interview or a big meeting the next day. Why? Because those things are important. They matter very much. But just because something happens every week makes it no less profound that we gather to hear from God through his word. And so you could think about in your own life, how could I prepare? Maybe the night before or throughout the week leading up, you could read the passage that we're going to be uh, studying. So you could prepare in that way. Maybe the morning of, you prefer to do it that way. Maybe you could do it as a family. Maybe in those few minutes when you're here early, you could sit down with someone and say, hey, do you want to read through the passage in advance? Maybe it helps you to be attentive by taking notes. Uh, if it does, do that. If it distracts you, uh, don't take notes. Know yourself. But let's strive to be attentive like God's people were, as we see in Nehemiah 8. They came attentively, eagerly. And now, some of those things we have control over. We can uh, try to limit our distractions. Uh, but sometimes that's not always possible. Uh, sometimes there are distractions that are inevitable. And so if those things are happening, maybe consider, oh, I wonder if I could listen to the sermon again in the afternoon uh, and just have it on in the background while you're making lunch. Maybe that would help you to be attentive. Uh, maybe it means not having your phone with you. Uh, maybe it means just leaving it in the car. Maybe it means actually bringing a physical Bible that you can set on your lap and turn the pages. There's no sweeter sound than hearing people turn the pages of their Bible. There's a lot of things we can think about. And again, this is, hear me, this is me giving just advice at this point. We're afraid of the front row. Maybe it would help you to sit in the front row to be attentive. Again, they're silly things, but I do think the principle is correct, that we should come eager, uh, attentively, and reverently with the right posture, prayerfully prioritizing and preparing well to hear God's word. A long exposition may not be your favorite thing, but let's resist the urge to settle for what we've become so accustomed to that, again, deep thinking we might think of as a 10-minute TED, TED Talk. Uh, certainly profound things can be said in 10 minutes, but explanation and careful examination of God's word takes time. And if it truly is God's word, it's time well spent, I think. One of the aims, then, in preaching is to give the sense uh, that's a lot of what we think about as we prepare to preach, those who preach God's word. 
And so when we read verses like Nehemiah 8.8 8, that says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, that, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. There's lots of things we try to implement to help give the sense. Uh, one of those things might be sermon points. We are not bound to have, you know, three points in a sermon. Uh, we're not bound to use a big idea. Uh, but does that help you be attentive? Does that help you understand? Does it help you gain a sense of what the text says? You tell me it does, so I keep saying what the big idea is. But that's the hope, that we seek to understand God's word. And so we don't only want to think of preaching as simply an explanation and a running commentary. We want to think of it as something that helps us grow in knowing God through his word. And so you have a responsibility if you come here to seek to understand. I will do the best I can every week. But I want you to, to, for yourself, seek to understand. Maybe after the sermon or after the service, you might want to ask someone, hey, what did you think of that really long first point he made about uh, seeking to understand? You know, what did you think about that? How could we grow in doing that? You know, maybe there's something that I guarantee there's things. Even though I'm up here for a long time, I leave a lot of stuff out. And so maybe there's a lot that you're like, oh, man, I want to. I wanted to go deeper on that. And so you could talk to one another. I would, I would love for more people to come talk to me and ask, hey, help me gain a sense of what, uh, how could I understand that better? And so again, preaching is not a running commentary. It's more than an explanation. But it's not less than an explanation of God's word. We need to understand. And God has seen it fit for us to have this steady diet of regular faithful preaching to help us know him more through his word. So preaching is an explanation, but it is also a proclamation. Preaching is a proclamation of good news. The most common word for preaching that we see in God's word is herald. Not the name herald, uh, but herald that can be both a noun and a verb. So the action of herald, so to herald, it just means to announce, to announce, to declare, to proclaim and then uh, the person of a herald in the ancient world was a, a man of character, a man of integrity who would be hired by the king or the state to go and make public proclamations of the king's words. And so if the king had an announcement to make, you know, there couldn't be an email blast. There couldn't be a, a notification you get on your phone. So they would send heralds to go and deliver the king's message. Now, it wasn't the herald's job to come and give a commentary on the king's message, like, oh, here's this new law, and I think this is going to affect you in this way. It's his job was to be a messenger for the king. And so in that sense, preaching, uh, it, it's the perfect word for preaching, to herald. Because preaching is not an opinion on the latest crisis or laws or fads. My job as a preacher is to be a herald for the king to declare God's message through his word. Now, what is this message? Well, the message that we proclaim is the story of redemption. The whole counsel of God, as we go from the first page to the last page in our Bibles, is the story of God redeeming humanity, the story of redemption. And so the ordinary way that we do that here at Heritage Grace Church is through just exposition, sequentially, working through books. 
And we do that to grow in, in gaining a sense to understand, but to, to understand not just the facts of what's there, but to understand God's work of redemption in and through that passage and how it fits into the whole story of redemption. Because this story of redemption, if we truly are redeemed, that's good news. And the good news is the story of God saving his people. The bad news is that, as I said earlier, we have all done what Adam and Eve did. We've all rejected God's word. We all question in our own hearts, did God really say? We do that every time we sin. We can't earn our salvation either. Because we have rebelled against God, we are, we are separated from him because of our sin. We can't earn our salvation, but God has made redemption possible. And so this is the gospel, which literally means good news. That God made a way for us to be made right with him. Now gospel, as a word, I said it means good news. And, and originally it was a word of victory. So if a war ended and the king wanted to spread the word that the war had ended, he would send a herald to literally proclaim the gospel, the good news that, that there was peace or that there was victory. And so in that sense, it is the perfect description of preaching, that it would be a herald proclaiming the gospel, a messenger on behalf of the king proclaiming victory. And what is that victory? Well, it's victory over sin and death. It's victory that's found only in and through Christ alone. Victory that comes because even though we were dead in our sin, even though we had separated ourselves by our rebellion and our refusal to obey God's word, uh, both in our refusal to do what he says and our willingness to do what he forbids, the hope and the victory that's found there is that God would send his son who was the only person who could ever live a perfect life, who could live a life that was in perfect obedience to God's word. And yet he came to die. He came to pay the penalty that we all deserve for our rebellion. And he did that to, to bear the full weight, not just of physical pain and punishment, but to bear the full weight of our sin and rebellion, the full weight of God's just wrath against sin and rebellion. But Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. He was witnessed, eyewitnessed by hundreds of people. Uh, it was documented by other eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And he did all this to, to accomplish and to demonstrate that God's just wrath against sin had been satisfied. That is the good news. The good news that if we would turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation, we could be made right with God. This is nothing we bring to the table. This is not our effort. This is not our merit. This is grace alone. And this is why the gospel is such good news. It's not just good advice. There's lots of churches we can go to where we would settle for a feel-good, self-help, good advice message. Friends, the privilege we have as a church is to be a church that proclaims not just good advice, but good news. Good news. Because imagine you're sitting in a hospital and you're told that you have this terminal illness. It's an incurable disease and you're just sitting there like, I can do nothing about this. Absolutely nothing. No hope. 
But then all of a sudden someone bursts into the room and says, hey, there's this treatment you can do. It, it, it costs nothing for you, and it's a 100% success rate. You wouldn't say, well, that's, that's good advice. You'd say that's good news if it were true. And friends, that's the joy it is to rest in the hope of the gospel, of good news, that you and I, because of our sin, we stand under this prognosis that is beyond hope on our own merit. We have an incurable disease from our own righteousness that we could never achieve enough. We could never do enough to wipe the slate clean. But the good news of the gospel is that what's impossible for man is not impossible for God. And so we rest in the hope of good news. And so we need to remember that it is the gospel that must be central to our preaching. It's not just an explanation of God's word. It is a proclamation of good news. And that's not only true for the, what I've spent most of my time talking about preaching, standing behind a pulpit in front of a church, that kind of preaching. But this is true for all of our gospel proclamation. It's, it goes without saying that it's not gospel proclamation if we're not proclaiming the gospel. And so it's very possible in our lives to, to think that we're sharing our testimony or to debate theology or to wrestle with ethical issues, to even stand behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning and fail to proclaim the gospel. But we must remember as a church, both in our preaching, as a corporate body, and in our personal evangelism, that we must proclaim the gospel. It is the gospel that's the power of God for salvation. And so different preachers will have different convictions. But my aim, my hope, every time I stand up here and preach, is that the gospel would be clear for everybody in the room. That no one would leave saying, what must I do to be saved? My hope is that the gospel would be clear in every sermon, not just allusions or facets of the gospel, but I want everyone to hear about a holy God, about sinful humanity, about a glorious Savior, and a call to respond. Why? Because in Romans 10, verses 14 to 17, Paul gives these, this series of rhetorical questions it tells us why we need the gospel, why we need gospel proclamation. It says, how will, they, uh, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It said a verse before in Romans 10 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We believe that that is true. But how can they call on him of whom they have not heard? And so we need to preach the gospel. We need to proclaim the good news. And that contains both explanation and proclamation. Because imagine someone went for a walk 2,000 years ago, and they were walking through 
of the fields, and they look, and they can see the silhouette of three crosses on a hill. They would probably think to themselves, this is a fairly familiar sight. The, the Romans are executing some supposed criminal. That in and of itself is not good news. But maybe as they approach, they start to hear what people are saying that the man on the cross had said. Maybe they're starting to hear about the things that the man on the cross had done. Maybe they're even hearing the things that the man on the cross is saying in the moment. And all of a sudden, there's sight that is, is turned into something far, far more precious because there's good news behind that. We can see that as, as Jesus started his earthly ministry. He didn't just show up uh, in obscurity and then die unknown and then, you know, hope to accomplish what he came to accomplish. He made his mission very clear that certainly he came to die. But how did he talk about his own ministry in the early days? We can look just at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus is coming with good news. He in and himself was the good news, but he knew that there needed to be teaching. Later on in the chapter, he says, and he said to them, let us go on into the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. So Jesus came to lay down his life for sins, but in order for that to even be understood, he first had to teach. And so we see, as we see this picture of what preaching is, it's an explanation of God's word, and it's a proclamation of good news. And then finally, preaching builds the church. Preaching builds the church. Now, if those last two statements I made are true, we can see how this third statement would be true, right? If preaching is the explanation of God's very word, and that preaching is the proclamation of life-saving good news, it would not be hard to piece those things together and say, well, of course, that's the way that God would build the church. But we don't have to conclude that only anecdotally. As we've been walking through this series, talking about the local church, on the first week we talked about how in God's work of salvation, we talked about how restoration creates a people. That in what God has done, he, he brings people together. That's a clear and consistent pattern that people would hear the gospel. They're saved by grace, through faith, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. They're given new life. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christ follower is not to just subscribe to something. It's to be saved. But to be saved is not only to have a Savior. When Jesus talks about the, the call to be his disciple... That's more than just having a savior. We all want a savior. If we ha know that we have a problem, we want to be saved. But what Jesus says is that he is to be his savior and Lord. And that's the part that causes us a lot of problems. But this is what the call is of the Christian life. To submit to God's word. To submit in God's way. To submit to Christ both as savior and as Lord. And if we do that, we'll see that God doesn't only bring us into this ethereal spiritual family, but he calls us in his word to live a life joined to other Christians. Joined to other Christians in the fellowship of local churches. As things that we've talked about, being a family, being a body, 
being a, a spiritual temple for the Holy Spirit that we are all bricks in. These things are assumed throughout Scripture. And that in these churches, then, we would submit to God's word as the final authority on all matters of life and doctrine. We would hold highly God's word. And so we could parachute anywhere into Acts or into the epistles, and we could see this pattern rolling out over and over, how God creates a people through his word. We could see in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches this Pentecost sermon, Many people are there. They hear the gospel. They are cut to the heart, it says. They receive this word. They're saved. They are baptized. They are added to the church. And then, then we get a few more verses that describe what they did as the church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so we just see this pattern. Hear the gospel. Repent. Believe. Be baptized. Added to the church. And then be devoted to God's word. We could look again at Ephesians 4, where we started this morning, how Christ gave leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Why? So that we could all grow in maturity. Why? So that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We could look at Titus 1, as we looked earlier in the fall, the qualifications for pastors and elders. That in Titus 1, verses 9, it's describing the qualifications for an elder. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Sound teaching builds up the church. It's how the leaders in the church will give instruction, not their opinions on things, but with a firm grip on God's word, the trustworthy word. And then it would also be that same word that, that guards the church. Not only is it what builds the church, it guards the church against false teaching. We could look at Matthew 28, to the Great Commission, where Christians are called to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. We see that the church is created, formed up, through the proclamation of God's word. And then that doesn't, that doesn't end. There's not a, an end date on where we don't need the gospel anymore, or we don't need God's word, but it's a continual thing. But turn with me to 2 Timothy. This is the second of Paul's letters to his apprentice, Timothy. And there's a, a beautiful sorrow in this letter, as you can tell that Paul is nearing the end of his life as he writes to Timothy. And so he gives Timothy these final exhortations, these final words. And it's really fascinating to think about what Paul doesn't say to Timothy. He doesn't tell him to go do a neighborhood survey and to analyze where the most strategic building location would be. He doesn't say that you should make sure that the seats are comfortable. He doesn't go and say that you need to figure out how to have the perfect welcoming ministry that doesn't overwhelm the introverts but energizes the extroverts. He doesn't go and say, here's the, how you pick songs that are going to make everybody happy. Well, what does he say in this second letter? Well, in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he says, guard the good deposit. What's he talking about? He's saying, guard the gospel that's been entrusted to Timothy. In chapter 2, he, he reminds him to be faithful, to remember the gospel, to present himself as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. In chapter 3, he tells Timothy that godlessness is going to run rampant, but Timothy doesn't need to worry because he has God's very word 
with these well-known verses from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 that says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so scripture is God's very word. It's profitable for all these things. It's equipping for all these things. And then what does he say? Does he just say, well, and you'll receive that through osmosis? Well, no. Immediately after, we can be uh, distracted by the chapter break, but rolls right in. He writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Those are final words those are that's a powerful exhortation to timothy and friends you can look at the climate of the world around us and you see that that is not an exhortation only for timothy in the first century i i don't think we could find verses that that work much better as we do a survey of uh, unfortunately too many supposed churches who accumulate for themselves these teachers because of their itching ears These teachers that just say what they want them to say to suit their own passions. And so we need this word as a church. Knowing that God not only builds the church literally through the word preached and through his work in our hearts as we respond to the word preached, but he builds the church through the preaching of God's word into greater maturity. That we wouldn't fall for myths, that we wouldn't wander off, but that we would be grounded here. Preach the word that's the word for our church today because if we get this right if we faithfully explain god's word if we faithfully proclaim the gospel everything else is going to fall into place not saying that means life is you know peachy we're going to solve every problem there's a lot of other important topics but we need to get first things first we need to prioritize preaching as the means by which God would build his church. God intends for the explanation of his word, the proclamation of the gospel to build his church. It's formative, it's corrective, and it's encouraging. Because we don't move beyond the preaching of the gospel. You could look at a survey of many great people through history who devoted their lives to preaching. And they know that the power does not lie within them. It relies on God's word. You could look at Martin Luther, the great reformer. When he was asked about his accomplishments, he answered, I simply taught, preached, and wrote about God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did it all. Preaching must be central to the life of the church. And so would you commit today to pray fervently for the preaching of God's word? Pray that for HGC. Pray that we would be a faithful church in the explanation of God's word, in the proclamation of the gospel. And then that would burst beyond the walls of this building or whatever building Heritage Grace Church gathers in. 
that we would be a church that proclaims the good news, life-saving good news. <clears throat> and pray the same for other churches. Pray that those who stand behind pulpits of gospel preaching church was true, would truly preach the gospel. And that God would build up his church through his word. We had a visitor recently who was making an observation about our services and uh, I, I think they were just meaning it as an observation. It wasn't supposed to be an encouragement, but I found it so incredibly encouraging. They just said, your service has a lot of Bible in it. Now we have room to grow. We can always get better. And the answer is not just simply trying to squeeze things in for it to tick a box. But I, I don't think I've ever heard such a, a high praise of a church that we would start with the Bible have a whole lot of Bible in the middle and end with the Bible. My prayer is that Heritage Grace Church would always be known as a Bible church, that we would be people of the book, and that we would do that for the sake of those who have yet to hear the gospel, that we would do that for the sake of every one of us who need to be strengthened by the gospel, and that we would be people of the book ultimately for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe at the fact that you do not stay silent. You speak through your word to us today. Help us, Lord, to remember the fact that every time we open your word, we come face to face with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding, that we would gain a sense of what you would have for us and that through the explanation of your word, we would grow to know you more. And we pray, Lord, that through the proclamation of the gospel, many people would come to faith. And Lord, that through the proclamation of the gospel, we would be built up as a church into greater maturity, into a greater likeness of Christ. For his name's sake, amen. <clears throat>